can turn to Hebrews chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, you may just listen along or you can grab a Bible in the back. If you don't have a Bible, those are back there for you as a gift. Hebrews chapter 13, we're in a little mini-series in the latter part of this book. Hebrews 13. I'm going to pick up where we left off, but I want to I want to read the two verses that precede our passage, the two verses Joshua left off with last week, because as he pointed out, you want to kind of ignore the chapter divisions, which were added later on, and see the connections that God wants us to see in his word. So I'm going to begin, actually begin reading chapter 12, verse 28. You may listen along. Chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let's pray and ask for God's help, shall we? Pray, Holy Spirit, you would. Use your word in our lives right now. Give us the gift of illumination, that you would you'd let us see with the eyes of our hearts and understand and be affected by, shaped by, even transformed by your word for your glory. Do this, we ask you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever have the feeling that everything around you is being shaken. Don't we feel like that even recently? You see the shooting in Las Vegas. Senseless shooting. 58 people, I believe, killed. Hundreds wounded or, or injured, and it just shakes you. You see the devastating earthquake in Mexico City. Buildings collapsing. Hundreds, I believe, being killed. And, and it, shakes you. You see hurricanes in Texas, hurricane in Florida, in the Caribbean, with most of Puerto Rico, I believe, still lacking power and, and drinking water. It's a shaking feeling. And maybe in your own life right now, maybe in your own life you would say, I feel shaken personally. Maybe in your health. Maybe with your finances or your job. Maybe something in your family. And you feel shaken right now. Look, a lot, a lot in life shakes, doesn't it? A lot in this world seems to shake at times. But the Christian, the Christian we read, the believer in Jesus is receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Did you hear that in the verses I read? That's where we left off in the book of Hebrews. It's so helpful. In the midst of senseless killing, devastating 
earthquakes and hurricanes and the shaking that happens in our own lives. The believer in Jesus is receiving right now a kingdom that cannot, will not be shaken. You have this sure, secure, eternal future purchased by Jesus. And so in the words of Francis Schaeffer, how should we then live? That brings us up to chapters 1 through 12. And then chapter 13 asks that question. How should we then live? How should we live? The, the short answer is worship. Thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, we read. But, but don't think of that merely as what we just did. Certainly our singing worship is part of our worship. But don't think when you hear acceptable worship at the end of chapter 12, don't think only, I'll do that when there's a band. Right? For the believer in Jesus, all of life is, is worship. All of life is now vertical in its implication and orientation. So we might ask, we might ask, how is our worship now to be seen? How, how should our vertical orientation and relationship with God now to go public, horizontally, in our relationships with other people? That's chapter 13. And what we're going to look at today, the one main way our vertical worship goes horizontal and gets seen. And the whole chapter, I think, unpacks that. But I want to see with you one main way, we're going to live that out, one main way, and then our text is going to apply that in two specific arenas. So, so track with me, it's a bit of a different outline. We're going to see one main idea, one main way we apply this vertical call to worship in our lives, one main idea, and then it's going to get applied in two specific arenas. Got that? Tracking with me? Okay, here's the one main idea. I would put it like this, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it fuels worship in the form of brotherly love. Brotherly love. Look with me at verse 1. You'll see um, this quite clearly, right? <laughs> verse 1, let brotherly love continue. I know you're thinking, Tab, what an amazing Bible scholar you are. You can read the verse, right? Let brotherly love continue or, or endure or remain. So verse 1 is your main idea, your main call. It's a call to Philadelphia is the word there. The city of what? Brotherly love. That's the Greek word that's being used in verse 1 in case that sort of uh, is interesting or helpful to you. It's a call to brotherly love. A call to love those who are in the same spiritual family as you are because of Jesus. You see, the gospel, the good news that saves us and, and forgives our sins and brings us to God, it also adopts us into God's family, meaning that God becomes your father, your father in heaven who loves you, and you are his child and we are his family together. Now, we've seen that. I thought it would be helpful to remember. We've seen that implied already in this book. So I'm not trying to make up an implication here. 
We've seen this already in Hebrews. We saw it in chapter 12, where we are told about our hardships in our lives, our trials, our difficulties, our forms of God's fatherly training. Do you remember that? He's a father who loves his children and so does not neglect us, but is involved in our lives to shape us and transform us even through our hardships and difficulty. This is, it's evidence of God treating you as a father. Or in chapter 2, you can think way back, I think this was before last Christmas, I know this strikes, all these sermons are standing out to you individually, and <laughs> no, they're not. They don't, they blur together, of course, for me. Chapter 2, we saw this implied as well. Chapter 2, catch this. I think we have this for the screen. Chapter 2, verse 10, for it was fitting, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons, daughters to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through, through suffering. For he who sanctifies, sets apart, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not, notice, not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Do you see all the adoption language there? I know I underlined it so you would see it in particular, but you saw it, didn't you? This is how believers in Jesus should think, I am a son or daughter being brought to glory. So much so, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. That's just mind-blowing when you think about it. That's mind-blowing. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, the Son of God has said over your life, Father, Father, this is my brother. Father, this is my sister. I, I share their humanity. I have atoned for their sins. I have cleansed them of their guilt. I have brought them into our family as you have willed and decreed. Friends, behold Behold the love of God for you as Father and you as His child. You know, we're going to celebrate the Protestant Reformation beginning in a few weeks. We're going to have a sermon series. I believe it's going to be five sermons. And the occasion is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle door in Wittenberg, present-day Germany. He was protesting the sale of indulgences, which essentially were, were the, the giving of money to shorten your time or, or then a relative's time in what was believed to be purgatory. And Luther said this was wrong, and he was inviting academic debate on the topic. And a few years after that, it wasn't at that moment, really, it was a few years after when he, through his study of the book of Romans in particular, and as he taught from the Psalms, he rediscovered one of the great truths of the Reformation, justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. That just means you are declared righteous before God by faith in Jesus Christ and nothing you bring. 
Nothing you bring, everything Jesus brings. He brings the obedience. He brings the righteousness. You trust in him. The Father says, I declare you righteous with the righteousness of my son. It's great news, right? Amen? We can celebrate this together. Justification by faith alone, rather. Great truth, but I don't know if you realize this. Not the highest blessing of the gospel. You aware of that? We tend to think of this good news purely in legal terms. And that's huge. Forgiveness of sins. Right standing with God forever. Am I putting that down? No. (laughs) But those truths open the door, those legal truths, as it were, open the door for a relational reality. God becomes your father, and you become his child. The highest blessing of this good news is adoption, knowing the father's love and being brought into his spiritual family. I love love how theologian and author J.I. Packer puts this. He said, adoption, adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers, even higher than justification. And he goes on to say this, in adoption, just track with me, in adoption, God takes us into his family, same spiritual family, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Listen, closeness, Affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship, God's relationship with you. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, he says. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Let me read that again. Let's take it in. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father as a result is even greater. Let that grip you, friends. Let that grip you. Because when it does, chapter 13, verse 1 will sing for you. Let brotherly love. When you get (laughs) at the highest privilege is knowing God as your father and his care, his love, his generosity are at the center of this relationship with you as his beloved child. When you get that, the call to brotherly love sings for you. It makes total sense for you. You won't say, what a burden. You'll say, that's the most natural thing in the world for me to show the family love of God that I've experienced in Christ. You see, verse 1 is answering the question, how should you then live? In light of Hebrews 1 through 12, God's answer is, show my love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Reflect the love that you yourself have, have received in me. And I think he says, though, God is a wonderful realist. (laughs) I think he says here in verse 1, to make sure brotherly love continues or remains or or endures, 
I think he says that here because sometimes it's hard for us. Sometimes our love for each other doesn't seem as obvious, right? Doesn't seem to be as enduring. We have differences among us in terms of age and seasons of life, and that's a great thing. That's one of our strengths as a body. It's a multi-generational church. It's wonderful. People in different seasons of life, it's wonderful. But what can happen, probably accidentally, singles can feel excluded from married couples. Or our older members can feel excluded from our younger members. And, and then brotherly love may not seem so apparent or enduring. Or we can almost kind of divide around when we became part of this church. Maybe especially were you here prior to the plant or after the plant? I mean, did you have long-standing relationships, which is great, but then has that made it hard for others to come into that circle of relationship and experience brotherly love for you? Sometimes it doesn't endure, does it, quite so easily as we want. Or we can divide, can't we can divide around preference issues like how we educate our children and educational means can become almost a litmus test for who are we really going to be close to? And brotherly love doesn't seem so enduring. Or we just have relational disappointments, which is a kind of a euphemism for we sin against each other. <laughs> we don't put that on the new website. You know, say, come and be sinned against. But we are redeemed sinners, and we still sin, unfortunately, which we could say, we, we won't. We'll never sin against you. But if you're a guest here, prepare yourself. You might. <laughs> we, don't, we don't wish that upon you, but, but you might get sinned against. That's, that's what happens, and sin strains relationships, doesn't it? Sin strains friendships, and brotherly love doesn't seem like it's as enduring. So here's the question for us. Here's the question. Is the good news of Jesus powerful enough to make sure brotherly love, Philadelphia, remains, continues, endures among us? I hope you're saying yes, Tab, it is. I hope you're saying yes. I mean, think about it. What are we saying about the work of Jesus Christ when our differences hinder our family love? Aren't we then saying, this other thing is more important to me than being a child of God together? This other thing, this season of life or this preference, this, this ranks above being in the same spiritual family together. May it never be, right? Or what are we saying when Jesus in his finished work, what are we saying about Jesus rather in his finished work when sin comes between us and separates us? Aren't, aren't we saying in those times the atoning death of Jesus which puts away my sins is not worth putting away your sin against me? May it never be. This gospel, friends, it fuels it fuels worship in the form of family love. That's the main idea. That's verse 1. And then God shows us two specific ways to walk that out. This might all seem rather unconnected, but I do believe verses 2 and 3 now give us two specific arenas to walk out that one main idea. Two specific arenas 
to apply the call to brotherly love. So here's application number one. Show brotherly love through intentional, intentional hospitality. Intentional hospitality. Show brotherly love now horizontally through intentional hospitality. Look at verse 2. You can see that I'm not making this up. Do not neglect, okay, be intentional about, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So be intentional about hospitality. And, and the word literally means love to stranger. Love to strangers. So, so be intentional about hospitality to strangers. See, in this day, they didn't have lots of inns everywhere where you could stay. They had some, but, but I'm told those that they had, they weren't always uh, so great. They could be a little sketchy, we might say. You know, it might be a little dangerous. There were no nice holiday inns. You weren't racking up Marriott points on your credit card. And so hospitality was a big deal in this culture, and especially so amongst Christians. You had now, in this day, traveling Christian teachers. And you had Christians fleeing persecution. And you had people coming to house churches like probably this one, needing, that, needing a place to stay. And you see this, just, just make a connection with me, you see this in the little letter of Third John. Probably not a letter you've been, you know, putting up on your, uh, your refrigerator, but... but 3 John is a letter about this kind of thing. I'll just read to you. We have this for the screen. Beloved, John writes, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. Notice, strangers as they are, who testified to your love, your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, the name of Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support and host and feed people like these that we may be, notice, fellow workers for the truth. That's a glimpse, I think, into hospitality, into what's going on behind the scenes in verse 2. So it's it's a call to show brotherly love with your, with your goods, your home, your food, your stuff, because you're part of the same family. Even if you didn't know them before, you're part of the same family. No, notice why. For thereby, through hospitality, some have entertained angels unawares. It's talking about the, the ultimate paradigm for biblical hospitality, a guy named Abraham in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. In Genesis 18, the inspired narrator Moses, he tells us, the Lord, the Lord appeared to Abraham as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of day. So Abraham's getting a divine house guest. He doesn't realize it. He looks up, he sees three guys in front of him. And then in, in perfect ancient Near East hospitality, Abraham runs out to meet them, bows down, says, guys, let me get some water for you. I'll bring some bread that you may refresh yourselves. He runs into the tent. He says, Sarah, baby, we got guests. Can you make some cakes? I mean, I wonder what Sarah's thinking. You know, hello, you think I've just got a cake here waiting for you? But she says, sure, I guess. He goes to the herd, gets a calf, it's killed, it's prepared. They sit down, they have a feast. And these folks know how to have hospitality. An amazing scene. Abraham is hosting, we find, two angels and some kind of physical manifestation of God himself. 
And he's doing so unawares at that point in verse 3, as verse 2 puts it. Now, I don't know that the point is exactly that an angel could be sitting next to you right now, although you never know. And I'm not sure that's the main idea here. The main idea, I think, I think is through hospitality, you could be, like Abraham, hosting a messenger from God to you. And you might find that you are blessed as you seek to bless others. You see, in that scene in Genesis 18, God manifests there. He says, you know, Sarah's going to have a baby in a year. And it's a great scene. Sarah laughs. She's, oh, she's eavesdropping and she laughs. And the Lord says, um, you know, why'd you laugh? And Sarah says, I, I didn't laugh. <laughs> and God is saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring to pass my promises. And I just wonder if that's sort of the takeaway for us. You will be blessed, friends, in some form or fashion as you seek to bless other people. And I thought about what about Scott and Jossie Moon? What about Scott and Jossie? Because they, they have had many people over many times, including the trainers. And we hang out like all afternoon. And I keep thinking, boy, we need to reciprocate. We need to have the moons over. And I keep failing to make it happen. And I told Scott recently, we were going for a walk together, and I said, Scott, I'm so sorry, I was meaning to have your family over, because you've been so kind, and he just said to me, with all sincerity, said, Tab, it's just our joy. It's, you don't owe me. <laughs> Tab, it's our blessing to bless you. And I think that's the kind of idea that's in view here. And friends, the good news of Jesus fuels this. Jesus enables us not to ask, as I would ask, well, when was the last time they had us over? The good news of Jesus enables us to say, my selfless Savior, my selfless Savior, how will you free me to live selflessly with my stuff? The good news of Jesus fuels this expression of worship. And so I love how Richard Phillips in his commentary asks a diagnostic question. He says the following. He asks the following. He says, how many people could describe the inside of your house? Not a good question. How many people could describe the inside of your house or apartment or condo? Let's ask ourselves that. How many have been there and they know what it's like? He asks as well, if you're married, are there any singles who could give directions to your dinner table? It's a good question for us who are married, isn't it? Are there, are there single adults in this room that could give directions to your house? Or he asks as well, if you're single, are there any widows or children who have seen the park where you go to unwind? And then he asks finally, are there any people you've had over because they are brothers and sisters in the family of God and needed encouragement and needed support. Oh, friends, that's the question, isn't it? Let me give you one practical thought. Okay, let the gospel fuel this worship. Let me give you one practical thought. Make it easy. 
make it easy. Here's what I do to my fault. I get all preoccupied about how neat is the house right now, how clean is the house. And so I go into a cleaning frenzy. Why? Because I, I want to look, I want to impress you. You know what? Don't go there, friends. Here's what I would submit to you, just for your consideration. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in a messy house with brotherly love is worship, right? I would just submit for your consideration that's not biblical, <laughs> per se. Peanut butter and jelly in a messy house with brotherly love, with brotherly love is worship. Or, if that doesn't work out, meet them for lunch. Take them to lunch. I thought it was interesting recently. I was talking with some guests and, uh, and came to find out that they were on their way to lunch at a local restaurant with Tim and Linda Lydell. I thought, of course, makes total sense. Tim and Linda have some kind of um, radar. Beep, 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 guest, eh, 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 and they radar lock on the guest, and they say, would you like to go to lunch? And if you're a guest here, and this is just a tip, free lunch for you if you find Tim and Linda, because I've just put them totally on the spot, and they owe you lunch. So sorry about that, bro. <laughs> I'll chip in, I will, I'll chip in. They're amazing that way. They have like incredible hearts for hospitality. And they just say, let's just meet up the street. I want to take you to lunch. Let me make a little further application very briefly. Just realize this is a step away, further into application, I confess. But friends, this kind of hospitality is also powerful for those who have yet to enter the family of God. Rosaria Butterfield was once a bold advocate for the gay and lesbian community. She was a professor and a mover and shaker in the gay and lesbian community. She wrote an article attacking the traditional view of marriage. It was picked up in a New York magazine, and someone in the Syracuse area where she lived said to a pastor, we have to shut this woman up. And the pastor said, my wife and I should have her over to our house for dinner right thinking. He and his wife invited this militant lesbian scholar, if I may say it that way, into their home, struck up a real friendship that God used to bring Rosaria Butterfield to himself. Since then, she has married a pastor. She has several children. I listened to an interview with her and she said the following. She said, the gay and lesbian community values hospitality and, quote, practices it with skill. But she said when she came to the church and became a Christian, she didn't find the same. And so she says, hospitality is ground zero for the Christian faith. And what I think she means by that is, here is just a super practical way our vertical worship goes horizontal and gets seen by those who don't yet know him. So friends, I just submit that to you as also a powerful tool as you reach out and you apply the class the Zellers are going to lead us into, that you open your home and you share a meal with those friends you're reaching out to and see how God might use that friendship. So that's application area number one. This gospel, this good news, fuels worship in the form of brotherly love. First, he says, through hospitality. 
Love of stranger, applicationary number two. Applicationary number two, show then brotherly love through, I'd call it, empathetic care. Brotherly love through empathetic care. Verse three, we read, remember those who are in prison. Some of their number had been imprisoned for their faith in Jesus. And in the past, we read in chapter 10, they had those not in prison had brought them food and cared for their needs because in this day, the state didn't do that for you. You were, up, you, were, you were left to your friends and family coming into the prison to care for you and feed you. But it could be a dangerous business identifying with an imprisoned Christian, could it not? Because that probably meant you were one of them too and might put you in jeopardy. But they did it anyway, and now God says, keep going, keep doing so, keep expressing brotherly love like that. But notice why. This is very intriguing. As though in prison with them. As if you were a fellow prisoner, since you also are in the body. Now, now this is not, as we might think of it, you're in the body of Christ together, so you should do this. And that's certainly true, but, but that's not exactly in view here. Here it's more of, because you can imagine what that prison would be like on your physical body. For your friend who's getting the lash on their back for their faith in Jesus, imagine if that was your back. In other words, feel how they feel in that situation. It's a, it's a call to biblical empathy. Now, I confess to you, I had to, I had to look up the difference between sympathy and empathy because I always get those mixed up. And here's, here's the difference. So sympathy, sympathy is feeling compassion, feeling sorrow or pity for the hardships of someone else. But online dictionary says, empathy goes beyond sympathy. Empathy is the ability to experience the feelings of another, to relate to what they're going through, to put yourself in their shoes. That's what God is saying in verse 3. As though in prison with them, as if you were a fellow prisoner, since you too are in the body. Put yourself in that fellow Christian's shoes so that you can then express empathetic care and love and compassion. And here we do so, right? Here we do so for those separated from the local church, those who can't come on Sundays. They're in prison. They, they can't attend. They can't be part of the community right now. Not to their fault. They, they can't make it to their small group meeting. They can't stay connected with others relationally. So God is saying brotherly love in those times goes mobile for the, for the shut-in, for the hospitalized, for the imprisoned, for the sick. Friends, anyone, anyone like that for you right now? Where you can feel what they feel, understand what they're experiencing, show love. I know you're doing this, for instance, for Naz and Craig Reed, and thank you for doing so. I'm staying in touch with, with Naz as she goes through chemotherapy. Her immune system is suppressed. She's trying to avoid large crowds, understandably, to try to stay well and not get sick. Many are calling. Many are texting. I just want to say thank you for doing so. Thank you for doing so. 
she tells me every time how meaningful that is. Just to know you're not forgotten means more than you know, friends. Thank you. And Steve Orlowski had back surgery. But he's, he's at home. Bryant Callahan had hip replacement. So he's not here. There are people that can't be here right now. And let's make sure we don't forget them, right? Because we're in the body as well. And then I thought about, I thought about as well, parents of young children and parents of newborns or parents of just multiple small children. And I remember that season where it, it, it easily isolates you relationally because you're so consumed and exhausted. You're just trying to get a nap sometime. And let's not forget them either, right? Let's not forget them. It's so easy for us, for, for me, to get busy with Tab's, Tab's world and Tab's life. And I don't empathize this way. I don't seek to feel what they feel, know what they're experiencing, and show brotherly love. But here's the ultimate reason why. Here's the ultimate reason why. It's because Jesus sympathized or empathized with us. Jesus Christ made our experience his own. Think about it. He took on a body to identify with us. That wasn't just empathy he was after. Right? He uniquely did that to save us and bring us to himself for all who believe. But, but the believer in Jesus is an object of divine empathy. God identified with you in your sin filled, being shaken world. He took on your humanity that God the Son might die in your place and bring you to himself. So how then should we live? Answer, we imitate his example. We take on their experience as if our own that we might show brotherly love. The gospel, the good news, fuels this for Think about, in closing, think about, think about Matthew chapter 25. Jesus, he talks about his return in glory when he will gather all peoples before him. And it'll be a judgment time. He will separate, separate out those who have believed and those who have not believed. And so if you're here and you've not yet believed on Jesus, I'm, I'm not trying to put you down, but I, I, I just ask you to take this to heart. A judgment is coming when we'll all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as judge of the universe and a division will be made. Those who have trusted in him and been reconciled to God in this life and those who have not. So I have an obligation to you to appeal to you to be in the group that has believed now and experienced mercy now and come into the family of God now. Please do. He will separate, Jesus says, these peoples. He'll put, in his terms, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats, he says, on, on his left. And he'll say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom, that unshakable kingdom. Here's where we'll finally come into it. The unshakable kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And listen to why. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. You see, they showed their faith by how they lived. They showed the reality of their faith by their lives. And it sounds a lot like Hebrews 13, doesn't it? Incredible parallels. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. It sounds like verse 2. Don't neglect hospitality. Jesus says, I was sick, and you visited. I was a shut-in. I was hospitalized. I was in prison. You came to me. It sounds a lot like verse 3. And those on his right say, Lord, when did we do those things? And Jesus, our King, will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, he calls you brother, one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, it's worship. It's worship. It's worshiping God acceptably with reverence and awe. So friends, how should you then live Receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When everything else is shaking, shootings and earthquakes and hurricanes and our own lives, when everything else is shaking, know that you are receiving this kingdom that cannot, will not be shaken. And so then you get to display worship horizontally in love as you imitate and reflect the love We're going to close by taking the Lord's Supper together.